This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. How'd you escape? Jack Flack always escapes. I don't need him anymore. I've got you, Bill. Thanks, Jason. What's going on, Bill Bant? It's good to be back. Yes. All right. That's right, listeners. Today we will be discussing 1984's Cloak and Dagger, starring Henry Thomas and Dabney Coleman. This movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 41 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. Davy Osborne is an imaginative youngster who loves role-playing games and who often enlists the aid of his best friend, an imaginary super spy named Jack Flack. One day, he witnesses a real murder of an FBI agent who passes a video game called Cloak and Dagger to him before he dies. When the police come, the body is gone. And no one will believe him, including his father, Colonel Hal Osborne. Soon, Davy finds himself up to his neck in hairbreadth escapes, real bullets, and slam-bang action as the hitmen close in. Can Jack save him before time runs out? Cloak and Dagger stars Henry Thomas of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Dabney Coleman in a dual role of Jack and Davy's father, and Michael Murphy. Few films in recent memory can top it for high-powered excitement and warm human emotions. Cloak and Dagger. Davy Osborne is playing for keeps. Ooh. Yeah, I love that tagline on the poster. It just cracks me up. Yeah. Because I see little Henry Thomas going, he's playing for keeps. He means business, Bill. Yeah, as an 11-year-old. Yeah, it's a little kid. All right, so that was What's on the Box. Uh, let's move on to our earliest memories of the film. Jason, please start us off. I will, Bill Bant. Matt, this was a fun rewatch. I had no idea what was in store for me. I had watched this film in decades, and I had fond memories, which I'm going to go over right now. But boy, I was in for a surprise. (laughs) Um. I have no idea if I saw this in the theater. I have a feeling I may have with my family. Um, I do have very warm memories of this film. I was always excited to watch it on uh, repeat, basically on HBO when it had come out or VHS. And I felt like I was Henry Thomas in this movie. He's supposed to be 11 years old. Uh, At this point, I'm 11 years old or around abouts. And 
Bill, at that time, we're in the midst of the video game explosion. The Atari home console had come out. Uh, it's that genre. And we're getting video game movies now. It all makes sense. And we've had Tron in 1982. We had War Games in 1983, which we covered on this podcast. Uh, War Games now, that wasn't technically a video game. That was more involving computers, but it's the same idea. Uh, then we have The Last Starfighter, which comes, which comes out this same year. Uh, which, you know, again, we did on this very podcast. So now we have this spy thriller starring a kid and his uh, neighbor, who's also a young child. And they're kind of like these avatars for us as kids during this time period back in 1984. I mean, we're talking about video games. It's it's the kid from E.T., you know, and I'm all in. I'm all in. That's where I was at this time. And I just remember watching this movie as a kid going, wow, the stakes were high. I mean, I didn't quite say it that way as a kid, but it was like this kid is faced with death within the first handful of minutes of this movie, and he handles it quite well, which is surprising in this movie. Then we're off to the races, and it turns into this whole spy thriller, and it's exciting from a kid's point of view. So, yeah, I, of course, remember the FBI agent getting killed in the stairwell, and it becomes literally a life or death situation for young Davy Osborne, uh, a.k.a. Henry Thomas. Of course, I remember the Atari video game, which is at the center of this film, uh, this spy thriller, and the video game is entitled Cloak and Dagger, and I always wanted this game as a kid. It was the same issue with The Last Starfighter. I mean, no coincidence, right? Both films come out in the same year and both video games are never released on Atari. Not really officially, not as we had seen these games portrayed in the film versions and extremely disappointing, but it always just looked so cool because it was attached to the story in the film. And I remember, of course, this, you know, wanting the video games, but uh, so that was an early memory, just the, the actual Atari video game, wanting that. It just reminded me to the early memories of playing games and always wanting to get the high score and, and thinking what a cool concept it was watching this as a kid, thinking that if you broke the high score, uh, what was it called? What did we call it as kids? Was it breaking the game? It was a, uh, when you got the high score, or if you got a million, you'd flip it. Was that what it was called? Oh, I don't know. Flip the game. Okay. That sounds right. That's though. what we called it. Okay. But in this version, in this movie, if you flip the game in a way or reach this particular score, which happens to be what, 1,329,000 points, you actually get this secret code and you are, you know, get this like prize almost, the secret information. I just thought that was the coolest thing as a kid. So I also remember, of course, Morris played by the wonderful uh, William Forsyth credited as Bill Forsyth in this movie, who is basically what I call the video game buddy who works at the gamekeeper in the mall. So young Davey Osborne and Kim Gardner, his friend go to visit him. And I remember Morris getting killed. That scene is brutal. I was heartbroken as a kid because I kind of thought he was cool in the movie. I always remember the gunshot, the, gun, the bullet hole in the computer monitor screen. Mm -hmm. That's a memory that sticks with me. The kind of blurred lines of reality and fantasy concerning Jack Flack, the imaginary friend of Davy Osborne. 
uh, Jack Flack being like, again, like, as I said, in the what's on the box, the super spy or secret agent kind of, is he real or is he not real? And we're going to discuss that. my friend. We are going to break that down a little bit. I remember Dabney Coleman just being extremely likable. He's wonderful in this film, really feeling the impact when Jack Flack dies. Oops, spoiler alert. And Henry Thomas's ability to emote as an actor, we saw him do it in E.T. He's he's a good, he's just a great young child actor. Of course, the bittersweet ending, I always remember, you know, that memory of Henry Thomas connecting with Dabney Coleman, who also plays his father in the movie, his real life hero. So those are my earliest memories. Yeah, I loved this movie as a kid. It was again, the stakes being so high, but it could like, could this actually happen? What would I do if I were in this situation? I was thinking that as a kid. Uh, so it was extremely exciting and dangerous and thrilling. Um, so there was that kind of the adventure of it all was just very, uh, it was part of something I, that sparked my imagination as a kid. So what about your earliest memories, Bill? I wanted to see this movie so bad when it was coming out because sure. it looked cool. And like you said, too, you know, Henry Thomas, the kid from E.T. And I knew Dabney Coleman from nine to five because that was a movie mm-hmm. that came on all the time on HBO. And I had like that one. So it's like, oh, this, you know, this should be cool. I never saw it in the 80s. Oh, no way. No, it wasn't until college. I Really? Did, yes. So my my freshman year of college. I ended up just coming home for spring break for the week and I did 25 movies in five days. It was all these movies I missed during the eighties. And this was one of, one of the 25 that I saw. So your first viewing of cloak and dagger was as a young adult. Yes. Amazing. And then I do remember as a kid though, the video game. And the only thing I remember about it though, is the always seeing the guy in the elevator Mm -hmm. and you know, thinking to myself, like, does this have something to do with the movie? I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, know right. what the tie-in was. And I think I tried playing it once and I was horrible at it. So I only did it the one time and I would just watch other people play, but the game made no sense to me whatsoever. So I didn't yeah. understand the game at all. But one of the things I do remember about the, the movie itself was the fact that it took place in San Antonio. For some reason, I, I was obsessed of visiting San Antonio at that time. I don't know why. I just always wanted to go there. <laughs> Random. Okay. I know. It's just like of all the cities, why do you want to go to San Antonio? I don't know. There's just something about Good it. Good basketball like, team. I did go to two games when I was when I finally yeah, did get there. there you go. Yeah. See? yeah. So and uh did that visit the Alamo and the in the needle with uh, a shot of it in one of the scenes. But I do remember being disappointed. Because I think it was, I don't know what, for some reason, you go to the video store and I would see it there and I just wouldn't pick it up. There was always just something else I would just take instead. And I don't know why I would never have rented it until seven years later. Right. And then finally watching it. And yeah, I just remembered not really liking it. And (laughs) I was caught. Right. I only laugh because I, I've upon rewatch as a fully, uh, mature adult or semi-mature, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, adult. I understand that perspective now. So in a way, I was interested that we were going to do this movie. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe when I go back and watch it, I'll, I don't know, like it more, appreciate it more. Or mm-hmm. I think it was disappointing. It was like, I should have saw this movie back in 84, 85 when I was a kid. 
and I probably would have liked it more. But seeing it as close to adulthood, I was just like, yeah, this movie doesn't no. This doesn't right. do it for me at all. Yeah, absolutely. I understand. And then even watching it yesterday again. And that's probably this is the only second time I've seen it. Uh, yeah, I was shaking my head throughout the whole film. I was just like, <laughs> oh my God. Whatever do you mean? Yo, yeah. Me too. Me too. This is a great one for the kind of that then and now perspective. Oh yeah, big time. Because I did watch this several times as a kid and then just having left it alone for so long and watching it again today was a bit of a shock to the system. I was surprised how much I remembered. Oh yeah. Me too. While I was going along. Me I mean, too. there was, there was definitely a couple of scenes. I just, I, I, I didn't remember at all or thought something else was going to happen and, and it didn't. It was just, was really locked away in the back and right. did, <laughs> it did open some doors in the memory chamber. I was so surprised at my memory of the Jack Flack uh, death scene, how vivid that still was in my memory Mm -hmm. Uh, because I could really see it. It was pretty much as I had remembered it. You know, we talked about the Mandela effect, right? uh, But that didn't come into play uh, with this. I was like, Oh yeah, no, this is how I remembered it. Yeah. This is what I saw it coming. And then it happened. I was like, yeah, there were aspects of it that I didn't remember, like very specific details that, I couldn't remember, but the general setting and the way it looked and the way it was lit, uh, I had recalled. So, yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah, we can get into some more initial thoughts if you're ready, Bill Bant. Yeah, um, I was certainly interested in seeing this again, just to see on the second watch, being much older, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back, just try to appreciate this as a film watcher. And yeah, no. This movie did not do anything for me whatsoever. It was just, <laughs> oh man, this is a crummy film. There's just so much wrong with this movie. And when we get to the complaint department, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna unload. So I'll just, leave, I'll just tease it at that for now. All right, and you are entitled to your opinion, and your opinion is correct. So, uh, <laughs> wait, real quick though, but my big, it, my biggest disappointment uh-huh. was when we're watching the opening credits. And seeing music by Brian May. Yes, sir. And I got so excited. I'm like, what? Right. Brian May of Queen did the music for this? Oh, my God. How do, how do I not remember this? And then three notes in, I was like, oh, this yeah. must be a different Brian May. <laughs> right. Like, oh, no. That was the first thing I looked up after the movie was over. Like, who? Not that there's anything wrong with the music. I actually take issue with some of the music in a way. Uh, I have some comments on that, but keep going. Yeah, it was just the fact I knew it wasn't like the Brian May. I mean, they're both the Brian May, but like the the Brian May. Right. Yeah, that was kind of a No, yeah. When I saw Brian May, I was like, oh, my gosh, are there going to be some sweet guitar licks in this? Are there going to be like some, you know, he has that iconic and very unique singular sound on the guitar that you obviously connect mm-hmm. to the band queen and he just has a specific sound and you were hoping at some point it would be incorporated in in the score but it is not the brian may we were thinking of yeah. uh, this brian may is an uh an australian composer so anyway yeah yeah good stuff man so i watched this today on peacock and it was free. It was great. Uh, so nice. Free access on streaming. It's nice to have. 
And then as soon as I had started it, the screen came up and it just read Peacock Kids. And I was like, oh, wow, is this going to be, they've got it on Peacock Kids. Like, mm. oh, is this going to be like a total, did I not remember this correctly? Is this like really a kid's movie? I thought it was not going to be it's adult not. at all. It, well, I, I, that's my next question. I'm like, wait, I'm watching. Is, is this a kid's music movie? Because speaking of the music, the music is telling me that it is a kid's movie. The music is very much, it almost sounded like a score or uh, something from a, like the Brady Bunch, like a 70s sitcom uh, in between scenes. It was just like this very pleasant, uplifting music. And I'm going, oh, this is totally going to be a kid's movie. And then holy shit balls! there's flying bullets going at a kid's head in a stairwell. I'm like, this is not a kid's movie. This, like, this is violent. There's some really aggressively violent moments in this, and then nonviolent moments in between. And it's very off-putting. The scene where Michael Murphy confronts Davy at the end and tells him how he's going to kill him. I'm I like, have that. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh I'm my like, god. Jesus. That's exactly. Jesus Christ. I'm like, at my age, if someone told me that, I'd be blubbering. I'm just I have, like, yeah, I specifically wrote that down. He says some gnarly things to this kid. And I'm going, is this PG? PG 13? What was the rating on this? I'm it was only PG. It, yeah. And it should not be. No. So I was going in, going, oh, is this going to be kind of cheesy now watching this? And then I, I was so like, holy shit. There's that element. So this is not a kid's movie. There's some yeah, aggressively violent things in it. And the handling of the violent or the subject of violence in this is something I sort of take issue with. We'll get into that later. So there's a couple of things right off the bat when we're getting into this idea of, well, it's basically when Davy witnesses a murder happening or actually uh he's witnessing this spy group engaging in some sort of action he's and he's doing so from a stairwell and he's looking out of a window and across the way is another building with reflective windows and they're like these mirrored windows so he's looking at his own reflection and can see then everything that's happening on his side of the building and the floor above him. And he's witnessing what's happening. The the transaction, which is occurring in the, on the floor above him in this room. And we see these two guys in lab coats, white lab coats talking to these two thugs. And one of the guys in lab coats, a tech or a scientist or doctor uh, has a cartridge in his hand. It's a game cartridge. And he tries to escape this transaction And one of the guys chases after him, shooting him with like a silencer. And the guy comes out the door into the stairwell and then all hell breaks loose. But I hadn't remembered this part where Davey is witnessing this through this reflective mirrored glass across the way. Yeah, that confused me. It is very confusing. And I'm trying to and I was trying to think, is this like I didn't remember this as a kid at all, like putting that together that he was looking into a reflection. He was looking across the way into a mirrored window and seeing a reflection. 
but I understood that they, I, in my humble opinion, were using that as a device to further establish that Jack Flack was a figment of his imagination because in this particular sequence, we have Davy looking out the window and then Jack Flack appears out of nowhere. He just magically appears. So that's one example of him being an imaginary friend of Davy's. Or a vampire. <laughs> yes. That's great. Sorry. And then he comes down and sits on the windowsill talking to Davy, like, oh, yeah, I remember that old mission that I used to be on because he's a super spy slash secret agent. And Davy's talking to him. But now we see in the reflective window across the way, you cannot see Jack Flack's reflection mm-hmm. because he's imaginary. So I was like, oh, is that why they were do- Were they trying to be a little bit cute here or further establish that Jack Flack's not real because you can't see his reflection? I thought that was interesting because I never picked up on that as a kid. So I just wanted to mention that. Let's talk about kid acting for a moment. Oh, man. So it's a little rough. In this mo- and I'm not talking about Henry Thomas. He's great. No, that's what even makes it worse because he can actually act. Right. The, the, yeah, that poor girl, every time she opened her mouth, I was like, oh boy. So Henry Thomas is obviously playing Davy Osborne. His best friend and next door neighbor is Kim Gardner. That's the character's name played by Christina Nigra. She's not great as a child actor. She's a little rough around the edges. And But I thought this was interesting, Bill, and I think it was forgivable, too, at that time. And I still find it somewhat forgivable, whereas I don't mind kids that aren't great actors. There's somehow a strange realism to it. I don't know. I don't expect them to be great actors, whereas I was kind of thinking of your brilliant child actors, such as uh, Anna Paquin in The Piano or... Kirsten Dunst in an interview with a vampire. And then you've got Dakota Fanning, like in Man on Fire or something else. It was Man on Fire that she was in, right? Is that yeah. and, and, yes. Uh, or Haley Joel Osment, Sixth Sense, right? Where you have these kid actors that are just almost too good mm-hmm. that I'm like, it doesn't feel natural. Yeah, because usually when you have like a kid ensemble, the kids kind of average each other out. Yeah, you get some this, kids that are good, some that are natural, some aren't so much. And you're like, well, that I I'm like, yeah. Yeah the, pr- the pr- yeah, the problem is like Henry Thomas is giving you like a nine and she's giving you like a three. Right. I agree. It's a great point. But I thought it was interesting because it just made me think of then the really superior kid actors, including Henry Thomas. Uh, but I felt like an E.T., he still had a real natural ability, just like Drew Barrymore is a great example, too, in E.T., Right. But yeah, see, that's the thing. Those kids were all kind of on the same plane. So that's what made it work. Like no one stood out as like, how did you get through casting? But then you get like a Dakota Fanning sometimes where I'm like, she's so good that she's portraying a sort of maturity that isn't necessarily realistic as a child at that age. Mm -hmm. It can be sometimes off-putting unto itself. I thought that was interesting to think about. So real quick, and just to continue with initial thoughts, Before that scene in the stairwell, the idea here is that it's summer. It's in the middle of summer. It's San Antonio. We've got two kids. We've got Davey and Kim. Davey's 11. Kim's supposed to be eight. They're just hanging out in downtown San San Antonio. They go to the mall. They're talking to their buddy Morris. Morris sends them on an errand. They go across the street to this building and you know, we've got Davey who's got a really big imagination. Obviously he has an imaginary friend. 
and he likes to role play. He likes to play war and uh, spy games and stuff. And, you know, he pretends like he's on an actual mission and he's recruiting his friend Kim to play along and she does reluctantly. So, and they go into the building and he's running around with a fake gun. It's a squirt gun. And this is a sign of the eighties when you had squirt guns and cap guns that were colored all in black. Oh yeah. You remember having the, like the machine gun water pistols that looked exactly like I had them all machine guns or Uzis or, but I, it that, was, that kind of made me chuckle when I saw that. I was like, oh, well, you that scene is so it couldn't, you know, would never happen today. But carrying a child carrying a fake gun into an office building would be extremely problematic today. It was just interesting, you know, watching it through present day eyes, I guess you could say, versus how it was back then. Uh, again, Dabney Coleman is really good in this movie, man. It was interesting initial thought. His first scene when um, after this whole debacle happens in this office building where Davy witnesses the murder. He's returned back home to his father, Hal Osborne, played by Dabney Coleman and uh, Lieutenant Fleming, uh, police officer, brings Davy home and Davy goes upstairs and Hal, the dad, talks to Lieutenant Fleming and, and says, yeah, Davy's going through a hard time. He just lost his mom. Dabney Coleman is like on the verge of tears. When he's talking about it, his eyes are all watery. I'm like, damn, dude, you're going to make me cry right off the bat here. <laughs> like he was, he's great. I couldn't believe that he almost brought me to tears immediately because now I'm actually invested in the story. Like I'm caring about like the fact that this child is maybe endured, well, has endured some trauma, the loss of his mother. We don't know how she died, but he's obviously very young and dealing with this and he's dealing with some probably disassociative disorder of some kind and has the imaginary friend is going through a lot. And his father is bearing some of that pain and responsibility for Dave. So it was just like, wow, okay, are we going deep with this? I don't know. But Dabney Coleman, good actor. So I thought it was interesting too, when later on in that scene, one of the bad guys calls the house. And that just reminded me of back in the day when we had the landlines only. Oh, yeah. And it's stranger danger when somebody you didn't know called the house and you would ask them, excuse me, who is calling, you know, kind of thing. Uh, who is this, you know, sort of thing. And when it, you didn't know who it was, how freaked out you would be and how easily that could creep you out. Yep. Especially in this scene when, is this Davy Osborne? I was like, yes. Good. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Could this movie be, this is another initial thought I had Bill. Could this be the ultimate classic 80s movie negligent parents oh scenario big time absentee parents in 80s movies scenario oh my god big time time. these kids are on bus benches in the middle of the night by themselves on different buses they're just wandering around 11 and 8 years old respectively yeah that was in my complaint department it was like uh child services please I mean, especially that scene where he's calling his dad and it's like after 11 mm-hmm. and it's like, shouldn't you be in bed? I'm like, Whoa, you're expecting your 11 year old son to put himself to bed or. Right. Oh yeah. Eat. That's yeah. off to work. He's totally unsupervised. Yeah. I was like, Mom's what's going off to work? work? Kim's unsupervised. They're just wandering around doing whatever the hell they want. Where's the babysitter? Where's anybody? Why isn't anybody seeing these kids going? Should we call somebody? 
You know who takes the best care of any of the kids in this movie? Are the spies. Yes. All right. So last initial thoughts. Here's my big question right now for you, Bill Benton. Exactly when do you think this movie goes completely off the rails? Because it does. Oh, right after the uh, murder of the... I don't even know what that guy was. Like you said, FBI. <laughs> you said FBI. That's how. So, it, so I was like, did I, did I miss that? No, that's. I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, because that's how it's described in a lot of like the research or description. But that is not true. He's one of the textronics, either doctors or technicians or scientists. Oh, he's not an FBI agent, but that's how he's described. He actually, when he hands the cloak and dagger cartridge to Davy, he says, give this to the FBI. Okay. And then mutters out the 1,329,000 and then dies. Yeah. Just gave that kid a death wish. And then three hours later, the bad guys actually make it into the stairwell to start shooting at him again. Yeah. It's like, uh, that's another thing. It's hilarious. Wow. Took you guys a long time to get from the room next. Anyway. Uh, that's hilarious. That's when you think it the, went off the rails was right. Then because I went along for the ride, man. I got on the train, but then um, just like Davey does in the movie on the bus, I actually pretended like I got sick and got off the train when he gets into the trunk of the car with dead Morris. This is much later on in the film. Oh, yes. But uh, last thought, man, to complete this segment for myself. Uh, which I've been hogging completely. There's really some aggressive violence in this, which is disconcerting for a kid's movie. But I suppose when I was a kid, it's kind of what got me amped up, I suppose, which we just made it kind of realistic or dangerous for me and got me like really emotionally invested as a child. But man, Bill, was the 80s just a generally irresponsible decade for like, Yes. Yes, I can answer that in one word. Yes. We're talking about the negligent parents, but then like the violence in these movies and everything. I'm like, Jesus, we just had no, maybe we're overdoing it now, overcompensating for for that now in a way with everything being so quote unquote PC, which can be a good thing, obviously. But I don't know, man, that was a crazy time. Yeah watching this as a kid uh, and watching it now going, holy shit, these kids are put in peril (laughs) at all times in this movie. Do we want to move on to favorite scenes and moments or do you have any other initial thoughts? I just wanted to touch on the Dabney Coleman thing just because, you know, he's playing dual roles in this film. Yes. Because usually when Dabney Coleman is in a movie, he's usually playing some kind of like dick character. Mm-hmm. And the fact he's playing two characters in this movie and neither of them's a dick, I found that surprising. He's like the sweet dad. And then Jack Black is just confident. I don't think he's a dick. I just confident. So it was it was nice to see another side of Dabney Coleman. I mean, I, I love just about everything he's in. He's been in so many great films. This is like the one of the few films where you actually see him playing against type, which uh, I found interesting. I think that was one of the saving graces of the movie for me. I would agree. I think between his performance and Henry Thomas's performance, I mean, just if you're just going based on that alone, those are the high points. I always, 
with Dabney Coleman, yeah, I just felt like, uh, yeah, it was definitely a bit of a departure for him. Was he? Did he do a little bit more of like lighthearted stuff? Was he ever like known for his comedic work, or am I? Th- I'm think of something else. He was in Tootsie. Yeah, he's still more the yeah the villain. And then like, even like Dragnet, he was still kind of the the dick in that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mistaking him from another there. actor. So that's my my bad. But um, he basically plays two good guys. All right. So now we can move on to favorite scenes or moments. If we have any, <laughs> wow! I, I I love it because I'm in total agreement with you, Bill, on this. This is this is like I said earlier, a shock to the system. This movie is not great. Yeah, but once you go, uh, first, I hear it. I literally can hear it in your voice because you have. I think you have a couple more than I do. Okay, you go first on this one. Uh, I actually enjoyed the cold open of this movie uh, because. <laughs> Oh, was that your favorite? So what? what that was you, it for me. That's your one favorite scene. That was my uh, one favorite why scene. Why don't you run with it then, man? Just start <laughs> okay. off with it. Uh, I'm going to blow it now. So, yeah. So the opening starts off supposedly in the Czech Republic or Soviet Union or somewhere. And all of a sudden, this guy comes parachuting in with an American flag parachute. And we have our first introduction to Jack. And Jack Flack has got his cool spy gadget with the cigarette that shoots um not a poison dart but like like the knockout dart for some reason he's got to swipe this case from some saudi and he's got the totally. wrist watch that's got the cutting tool on it very james bond-esque like it's sort of like q toys <laughs> another spy is going to shoot him but you find out he's got a beret and the beret can deflect bullets and he uses it to deflect the bullet off this spy yeah it's fun watching this i was like i would actually just like to see a jack flack movie even though it's kind of cheesy a little bit but there was something about it right totally agree yep yeah that worked and then the scene kind of ends where he gets the case and he's running off down this alleyway and this gate comes down so he's trapped so you're like oh how's he gonna get out of this and all of a sudden these huge like dungeons and dragons dice come rolling in and you realize they're just role playing. So I thought the transition of it was really cool of how they did it. And then after that, everything just fell apart. But yeah, I just like the Jack <laughs> Flag. I was like, oh, this is like, because even like when he comes parachuting in and like the parachute just gets sucked up in the back of his jacket. Cool. I was like, oh, that was kind of cool too. So it was I like, like that yeah, some little cool gadget things. I liked his uniform mm-hmm. with the blue beret and he's got the gray jacket and matching pants. And Afterwards, it's like, I'd rather have just seen a Jack Flack movie than what I just watched. I agree with all those points because you have the cool gadgetry, but also it is a little bit cheesy, but it makes complete sense because we then come to understand this is in the mind of a child. We have an 11-year-old Davy Osborne who is envisioning this in his mind's eye as he's playing a role-playing game. This is how he sees his hero, his imaginary friend, Jack Flack, how he would operate how he would walk and talk and be smooth and suave and then with the quick reflexes and the the fun gadgets like you mentioned but it's just slightly cheesy enough that it's because it's a kid coming up with this stuff so it totally plays in that i would have liked to have seen more of in this movie and because it's just more even though there are some violent acts in it it's not overly graphic it's more in a light-hearted tone if that makes sense 
in more of the adventure and spy thriller genre. But again, like a, like, you know, we have spy kids now, those movies, which I'm right. sure your kids have what, like those kids eat those movies up, right. Mm-hmm. Where they just have a little bit more fun with the spy aspect and a little bit go a little easier on the violent aspect of things. But yeah. So I, I like the cold open too, because it's just kind of your typical scene, but there, it has a more, there's a little more levity to it than yeah. When the giant dice come rolling in at yeah. the end, it's a cool transition. So definitely a, a favorite scene. Yeah. It's like his little diorama of the set. So on some of these other scenes, you know, I actually wrote this down after Davy has witnessed a murder. Actually, he's witnessed a shooting and this tech guy, this uh, doctor comes down the stairs. He's been shot. He's bleeding and he hands off this cartridge to Davy. He ends up going home and telling his dad and his dad won't believe him that he actually had witnessed a murder and he's all bummed out. And the next morning, his dad goes off to work. His dad is a He's supposed to be like an Air Force air traffic controller, according to Wikipedia. I'm not sure. We know he's in the Air Force. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. I don't believe he was an air traffic controller. I don't know who or how anybody came up with that. I don't believe that. But we understand that he's been in the Air Force for some time. And he leaves for the day. And we know that Davey's got this gaming cartridge that holds this highly... We don't know what it is, but it has some kind of important information on it. And the thugs show up at his house and it it's super aggressive. They're busting through doors and going after him in the house. Oh, yeah. They are out for blood. And I think that seems exciting. I just put that down as kind of a moment where I was like, wow, the stakes are really high in this. It's not what you expect at all from a kid's movie because you've got Haverman is the name of the the six foot four thug played by Tim Rosovich who comes literally crashing through like a kitchen door or something like that through a glass door. Oh yeah. And they're chasing him up into his room and he gets out of the window anyway. So I put that down another moment. I mentioned that because again, it just raises the stakes. I did appreciate that about this movie. You really feel like Davies in danger, but uh, another moment that I enjoy is when Morris who uh, works at the gamekeeper is playing cloak and dagger to try and figure out what the secret chip is all about. That's inside the cartridge. He knows that he has to get a high score. He has to reach 1,329,000 points, which he does. And I, I've mentioned this in other podcasts. I love the discovery moment. And this is the moment when he hits the high score and the secret information that has been implanted in within this cartridge is revealed and it's plans for an invisible bomber jet. That shit's cool to me, man. That's cool. I was like, I dig this. Okay. The design that he's witnessing on his computer monitor is uh, an SR-71 Blackbird, which funny enough, then, and this was before we even knew at that time, because this is 1984, and then it would come out later that the SR-71 Blackbird was an actual stealth bomber that oh, okay. was very much used mm-hmm. by our government. I actually, here's a little side story for you, Bill Ben. I loved going to air shows, especially you know, with my dad and the family. And I actually got to see a uh, SR-71 uh, do two flybys, one at uh, low speed, one at high speed. It's one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in my life. Oh, wow. 
I don't know if you've ever seen an SR-71 in a hangar at all or at an air show or no, I don't think so. or something like that in person. It's one of the coolest designs of a jet I've ever seen. It's my favorite of all time. Uh, it's sleek. It's all you know, jet black, pun intended. But to see it uh, at low speed, it shook the ground that you're standing on. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's that loud. Now, it obviously wasn't going supersonic when it flew by it. It did its high speed pass, but it literally blows you off your feet. Uh, and uh, it was cool. Got to meet one of the pilots too. It was just awesome. So that moment when Morris discovers, oh shit, this is super spy stuff. This is high level government agency information, uh, an invisible bomber jet. I wish that had come more into play later on in the film too. It's like, what's the Clint Eastwood film? Was that an 80s movie? Firefox? Firefox, yeah. Hell yeah, man. Something like that. Do a do a mix of uh, Firefox and Cloak and Dagger. What would that even look like? So that brings up the question: Were they yeah. trying to steal the plans so they could build their own? Was that what it was? I see. <laughs> because looking at that, I'm like, that doesn't really t- tell you anything. There's a lot of moments in this movie where you just are going, "What the fuck is going on? Who are these guys, and why? How did they get this information, and what are they doing with it? Why do they?" Wa-? And I think it's just as simple as this. Bill Bant is that. These guys that work at Textronics, which I believe is, means like Texas Electronics, mm-hmm. their job is as these spies is to take top secret government information and plant it within gaming cartridges. That's what they do. And then they sell it to the highest bidder who are spies from other countries. And that's what they do. They're just trying to make money as spies. And they don't give a crap of what, what's actually on the microchip that's within these cartridges. They don't care about it. That doesn't mean anything. It's just that Davey's in the wrong place at the wrong time, gets his hands on one of the cartridges. And yeah, we see, you know, we see the spies then doing the handoff at the Alamo. And they literally say, yeah, we don't, I don't care what's on it. We just need to make the handoff and get the money. And that's it. I'm glad you got that out of that, Jason, because uh, I missed all that. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. Uh, another moment that took me off guard was when later on Haverman, again, this big six foot four thug is driving the van. Got to have the van. Where's the van? Right. The van. Get the van. He literally drives through a phone booth and it goes flying through the windshield. Holy Christ, man. He's all bloodied and everything. I'm, again, this is a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. What is going on? Yeah, that scene didn't make any sense. I'm like, okay, you know you're driving through a phone booth to kill, to run over a kid. Mm-hmm. Kill him. Kill 11-year-old. What did you expect to happen on the other side once you went through the phone booth? And he acts like, oh, my God. Ah! <laughs> like You not know a building was on the other side? Didn't you know to swerve? I should recategorize some of these like my favorite bad moments, I guess. But that one took me off guard because it was just more of a shock. I was like, I'm just going to put it down as one of my favorite problematic moments. Uh, Did you have anything else in this segment? No. That was it. (laughs) It was the opening. That was it. And the fact there were were shots of San Antonio. So I was excited to see the river walk. And oh, yeah. Alamo. Yeah, I've been there. There you go. Good for you. Yeah, not much. All right. My last thing I'm just going to say is my favorite yet extremely problematic scene okay. is the crossfire gambit. Oh, my God, Jason. <laughs> it's terrible. 
I cannot believe. I'm. I said extremely problematic. But Ex- I still extremely, extremely. I, like a, That's like too a extremely. memory I had as a kid. Like that. This whole crossfire gambit that goes all the way into Jack Flack's death scene. It was just a like an emotional memory for me because I I was really bummed, man, when Jack Flack dies. Like I think I probably was on the verge of tears as a kid. So there were thing aspects of the scene that I thought were cool like the idea of it, but the execution of it is not good and just doesn't make any sense. It's not realistic and it's violent. And uh, so that's like Gallipoli. It's basically World War One. It's like, just get get out of the trench and just run and hope you don't get shot. I, I don't, I couldn't, I, I could, just, I'm, I, I'm, I could I'm, come up with something, Bill. And I just, was I'm like, watching I'm just that scene and I'm like, Oh my God, you're telling a little kid to just, yeah, just run out there, draw their fire. I'm sure he's not going to hit you oh, in close so space. Many problems like Jack Flack is supposed to be a hero, and he's literally Jack Flack has Davy walk through oncoming traffic in this movie. Not good. It's not no. good. All right, let's just move on. Let's just move on. We got to yes, yeah, because it's it's tough. All right. Hello, Bill Band here from the All Eighties Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80s movies 50 to get your 50% off today. I mean, we're, we're already getting into it. So Swiss cheese and complaint department. And the reason we call it Swiss cheese, because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we're just going to file many, 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 many complaints to the complaint department. All right, you said you had something with Swiss cheese, so you can go first on that. Well, this is my my number one issue and whole, I believe, with the entire plot of this movie because it all rides on Jack Flack. Okay. So if Jack Flack is an imaginary friend, okay, then what he says is just uh, inside Davy's mind, correct? Correct. Which means then Davy must obviously know a shitload about spy tactics and strategy, right? Because what Jack Flax says in the movie, his dialogue is actually technically inside Davy's head. Yes. Okay. Or is Jack Flack more like, it was funny that you actually called him a vampire earlier, but at some point does he become like this corp- corporeal entity? Does, is he, something more than a figment of Davy's imagination, because there are things that Jack Flack actually does in this movie that Davy can't do, couldn't actually physically do. 
there's an entire car chase through a parking garage where he can't look over right. because he's sunken down in the seat, pressing the gas pedal and Jack Flax giving him directions, turn right, watch out for this. Yeah, that's true. When Davy gets in the trunk with one of his best friends, Morris, who's dead and seems to not mind it all that much. Like he handles this. No, yeah. Like that's all yeah. fucking batshit crazy. He gets in the trunk with the dead body, Jack Flax in there with him and the dead body of Morris falls on top of Davy. And Davy's like, Jack, can you help me get him off? And Jack Flax reaches out and takes Morris's arm, dead arm off of him. Like he's doing things that Davy couldn't do on his own. And it breaks the whole logic of this. Does that make sense? There are things. Yeah, I was buying it for the most part because part of me was like, okay, he's been probably playing Jack Flack games so much that he's somehow compartmentalized. I can't say that goddamn word. Yeah, compartmentalized. Yeah. Thank you. And Jack Flack is just feeding him back stuff he already knows from just playing his game so many times. So I was okay with that. I would give the Morris thing where in times of extreme stress, where people have like feats of like their strength of 10 times stronger, like if your kid's pinned under something and they're able to lift something sure. that they shouldn't do. Right. What totally threw me off was the end when Jack Flack somehow reveals himself. Then I was like, what the fuck? I can't that explain that. Is astounding and confounding. Because yeah, that, I did not remember that. And we'll get to that in the complaints, I'm sure, uh, when we break down that entire scene. Because that, but that does directly play into, because that's what I'm saying. Does Davy then have some sort of ability to manifest this imaginary friend into some sort of real being? Or is this not just a spy thriller, but also a fantasy film? Where, you know, because I think where it really jumped out at me is, like I said, during the, car chase once you have Davy who's trapped in the trunk of the car gets through the back seat into the front seat and where the keys have been left in the car which is a whole nother no, issue yeah. and starts the car and then drives the car up through the parking garage and somehow gets through the streets and yes it's haphazard and he crashes the car up majorly but maybe that's you know I don't know Jack Flax giving him directions turn right here watch out for this that and the other thing and it's just like wait a minute but it could be Davey giving himself the directions but he can't see he can't see over the dashboard I know I don't know the logic was failing for me yeah I can't I I don't have a real good argument for that no it's all good (laughs) I was just like is so is this a fight club situation where he is Jack Flack and Jack Flack is him so when we see Jack Flack lift Morris's dead arm off of him, that's actually him doing it. Like you said, like he has like an adrenaline rush and he does these things, or maybe he is giving himself directions in the car. I don't know. Regardless, another hole I was thinking is just that, I don't know if it's a complaint or a hole, but I just think it's a problem with the plot is that Davy just handles the extreme, like death. He handles death way too easily in this movie. And I don't think that's Henry Thomas as an actor. It's more of a direction. I mean, there's people dying around him all the time. He's just fine with it mm-hmm. until near the end, which I'll bring up a moment, which is weird to me. But 
I just feel like this kid's got nerves of steel or he's severely maladjusted. I'll go with B. I just think Davey's got, got a lot of problems. Well, you do mention he's seeing some sort of doctor. Yeah. Because he's so deep in this fantasy game. So, I mean, let's just call it as it is. But I mean, the movie is batshit crazy, really. I mean, it's it's really problematic in the way that the violence is portrayed and how these kids just handle it. It's like your best friend gets kidnapped. And or I should say, yeah, and he's just, yeah, OK. Jack Flack tells me you got to get in the trunk and they open the trunk and and there's dead Morris in there with a bullet in his head. And he's like, oh, OK, he gets in the trunk. I was like, no, if I saw one of my great friends shot in the freaking head. Yeah. In the trunk. I'm not climbing in the trunk with the body. No, not at all. Don't ask me to do that, Jack Flack. No. Should we move on to some complaints? Yeah. Or 150 complaints? Okay. I'll try to leave it to the big ones because if I, if I try to do every little one, this will be a four-hour podcast. Okay. So the opening scene where the scientist, whatever, gives the cartridge to... I love how they keep saying tape. I'm like, it's a cartridge. Oh, I know. I actually added that in my questions. (laughs) Driving up the wall. And then the scientist gets shot, somehow falls forward. Oh, yeah. Five floors, smacks in the ground. David runs down to tell the police that a guy's died in the stairwell. And then it's like, oh, let's go check it out. And they go in the stairwell and there's nothing. Right. And no blood. Everything's been wiped clean. Yes. In 45 seconds. Yeah. No. Impossible. Even with the guys, they were like three floors behind. How would they know? You wouldn't even think right away to pick up the body and move it somewhere, let alone no. try to clean. I mean, we kind of went over this in For Your Eyes Only when the when that the thug falls off the cliff and, and looks okay. <laughs> right. But the same here. Yeah. Thing. yeah. There's no I, way. I was just going to take it a step They might have been able to move the body. Mm-hmm. But you're not cleaning up the mess. No way. No way. But there's no way they would have gotten down there in time to do that by the time the cops show up and said, like, no way. Mm-hmm. But I, I just want to take it a, a moment back because I want to just call out or give a shout out to some excellent dummy work when the guy, the the uh, doctor that gets shot falls over the railing. It's just clearly a dummy. Right. And you hear the wonderful. Uh, sound the uh, just the scream that's overlaid. The, ah! It's just a great scream as the dummy falls all the way down to the ground. But it's just hilarious too because the scientist gets shot somehow falls forward and then Davy shoots Rice at the end and Rice shoots back about thirty feet. The same same type of gun. Oh yeah, where's the <laughs> physics in that? Because I was really expecting the scientist to get shot and fall back through the glass because I didn't remember what had happened at that point. And then when the fact he fell forward, I'm like, what? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's like I said, that's when I kind of checked out and was just like, oh, boy, here we go. Well, one of my complaints is in that same scene. It, I'm going to even take it back a little bit further uh, is that when we see from Davies watching this action unfold in the room upstairs where the scientist has the cartridge runs out into the hallway. We see one of the baddies chase him. We hear the gunshot from the silencer pistol. He shoots him in the back and he's right, clearly right behind the scientist. And then from Davies point of view, he turns around to see the scientist come through the door into the stairwell, come down the stairs 
and hand off the cartridge and say, and meanwhile, the bad guy was just behind the scientist. Yeah. They're all like, it's like they're listening to what he's telling Davey. And this plays into another major complaint I have in the entire film is these bad guys, first of all, are awful at their jobs. Yes. But their reaction time is really slow. They're very delayed in all of their reactions. Whenever they go after Davey, they just wait for Davey to run like 100 yards before they start running after him. And like this scene in particular is a perfect example because they, the bad guy just shot the scientist in the back, doesn't show up for another 20 seconds in the stairwell. It's like you were just behind him. What that, where did you go? Did you just take a smoke break and then decide? Yes. Then, oh, I should probably continue to chase him into the stairwell. I just think it's funny because there, there's all their reaction time throughout the entire movie is severely delayed. Oh. Uh, what's your next complaint, man? Oh. All right. No, I, I know. I know. I said. I know. I would say big ones, but here, who writes their full name on their softballs? Softball slash grenade. Yeah, you you just put your initials on your sports equipment. You never put your full name. That was so dumb. That was such a dumb way for them to figure out who Davy was. Write your full name out. Yeah. No one. And somehow does they got his phone number from. Yeah. That. Well, the telephone book. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. I thought that was uh, I, I, as soon as I saw the full name, I just started laughing out loud. I'm like, come on. Yeah, it's great. Another side story for you. That's uh, when, you know, that's how I got the nickname Massive One was because I was going to school. I was on the school bus one day, sitting next to a kid, and I was bringing a soccer ball to school. And on the ball, written in marker, was my last name, just Massic. And part of the K had rubbed off. And the kid next to me looked at it and he says, "What is this supposed to say? Does this say massive? Like you're, you're like you're, you're like you're massive massic or something, man?" I was like, "Oh, that was a nice ring to it." <laughs> but you didn't have your full name on the ball. It didn't say Jason Massic. No, two hundred two Lakeshore Drive, or even your middle initial too. That's what's crazy. I was like, "Come on, man!" <laughs> oh, dummy. I love the fact that. The bad guys have kidnapped Kim, little girl Kim, little bad actor Kim, and they are now contacting Davey on walkie-talkie and saying, you have to come to the Japanese gardens and we're going to do a trade. You give us the cartridge, we'll give you back Kim. So they go to the Japanese garden and the bad guys are holding Kim over the edge like of this stone like cliff, like hundreds yeah. of feet up throw it a koi pond she's not even screaming no he's not in a public like, place she's like kicking her feet a little bit and he davy looks up at her obviously concerned and he's hesitant to hand over the cartridge and she's not scared in the least she's actually pissed she actually goes davy and I was laughing. I'm like, oh, my God, what is happening in this movie? What is happening? Because if you're a little girl, eight-year-old girl being hung like over an edge like that. By a stranger. You're crying. You're screaming. You're saying help or, and something. Come on, guys. What are we doing? What are we doing here? If I did that with one of my kids, they'd be freaking out. Yeah. That's my own kid. It's a strange man that's holding you like you're. A rag doll. This is definitely this might be actually be a hole. And correct oh. me if I'm wrong. Okay. Okay. So we know that 
Davey, speaking of this scene at the Japanese Garden, he's brought a different cartridge to the trade. He's not going to actually give them the real game cartridge with the real microchip in it. He's going to give them a different one from the store that Jack Flack had given him, basically. But he stole another game, another cartridge. And when he gives it to the bad guy, the bad guy turns the cartridge over. This is the bad guy being Mr. Rice, played by Mm -hmm. Michael Murphy. Turns it over, and there's a sticker that says, the gamekeeper and which reveals that it's not the real cartridge. This cartridge came from the store. And I'm like, wait a minute, how did the cartridge, which was in a wrap package. That's good, man. As soon as you started saying, I'm like, Oh my God, I missed that one. Right. Yeah. How the hell did you get that sticker on there? Impossible. Yep. They needed, they had to do it to move the story forward. And so that the bad guy would know the cartridge wasn't the actual cartridge. Because when that scene was unfolding, I'm going, Again, I'm like, oh, I know he finds out that this is a fake, but how does he figure it out? And there's a sticker on it. I'm like, oh, that's why. Because the sticker says the gamekeeper. And I'm like, wait, no, that's impossible because it was inside a wrapped package, the actual Atari box that it came in, which would may have had the sticker on it, but not the cartridge inside the package. And they could have fixed that because Davey was stupid enough to take the box to the gardens unwrap it there and throw it in the trash. Yeah. What if they come across that in the trash for some reason? Right. Yeah. He could have just done the box there. No, it's a good call. I I missed that one. Wow. So that may actually be a hole. That is a hole. Okay. Because there's no way he should have figured that out until he opened. He would have to literally open the cartridge and see that the piece was missing. Right. But then would have no idea what to do next. They'd have to just chase the kids. No. Hey, man, the San Antonio River does not look attractive to me. I'm just going to say that. Oh, the river walk? Yeah. Well, I was the- like, this river walk, looked, that looked nice. But the river itself just looked like a flowing river of mud. I was just, I thought that was kind of funny. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, this is not a pretty river. <laughs> Sorry, San Antonio River. And this, San yeah. Antonio. Yeah, and that's hilarious, too, because there's that one scene where Alvarez is chasing Davy. And he whips out the gun right there by the the river walk. The river walk's not that big. Mm-hmm. When I've been there, it's packed and it's very narrow and you can barely get through. If someone's pulling a gun in the middle of the river walk, someone's probably going to see that. And all, all, right. all hell's going to break loose. Sure. And the sure. fact he just pulls out a gun in the middle of a public place like that and misses Davey four times running downstairs. I don't know how you would miss him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's just used to shooting adults, so he keeps aiming high. I don't know. <laughs> That's good. I like that. I like that logic. God. Works for me. I totally buy it. Now I totally buy it. But that's the thing. And then there's a scene where they're at the river walk again and they're in the dark. And Alvarez is able to shoot a six-inch rat on the Oh, at the end. On the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He can sh- he can shoot the womp rat, but can't <laughs> can't hit a kid. Right. It's horrible. Totally makes. Yeah. God. Yeah. I didn't wait. I hope there was a disclaimer at the end of the movie that there was no animals harmed in the production of this film because I felt bad for the rat. So we talked about this just briefly. You know, Davey's always listening to the direction of Jack Flack, who's supposed to be this, you know, again, smart, uh, experienced super spy who tells him to just walk across a busy street with moving cars I was like, what the fuck is going on in this? I mean, it was just, it's a short scene, but it's just like, what do we, what, what do we do? Why would he, 
what would name? And he said, he literally says to Davey, because Davey doesn't want, he's like, we have to wait till the car stop. And he's like, no, if you just walk, if you just keep moving, it'll, you'll be fine. And then Davey almost gets hit by two different cars. Yeah. What was that? Like, what is that? What was happening in this movie? I don't know. Why is Mr. Rice leaving his car unlocked in the parking garage of Textronics? And then later on, the it's either the thugs or he leaves his keys in the car. Yeah. So, like, was that a thing? I, I mean, I know we left our doors unlocked sometimes in a peaceful, you know, neighborhood in the 80s, whatever. But I just thought that was a matter of convenience. Yeah. I, I was like, what? Anyway. Do we want to break down just how terrible some of these scenes are? Oh, the first time we meet the old couple and Alvarez is kind of like following Davy on the boat and then tries to kill him and does like that awful lunge with the knife. <laughs> the most telegraphed move. Classic. And then everyone panics when he says fire. I'm like, you could tell in two seconds there's no fire. Right. And, and why is everybody running towards the fire in the boat? Supposed fire. Oh, it's so weird. And then why do we have to meet the old couple early on? Why couldn't we just wait until the Alamo? That made no sense. He just, he just, what were they doing on the boat? Yeah. What we're about to steal plans. Let's go on a little tour first. I suppose. Yeah. Like literally that was supposed to be coincidental that they just happened to be on that boat. I mean, that is pure coincidence now that I think back upon it. Right. Cause they weren't there for the handoff. They're not on that boat for the handoff that cause they wouldn't have known because they weren't supposed to be there at all. Like they, they didn't know about the kid at that point. No, that was so dumb. I, yeah. What are was, the chances? It was just forced. It's too forced. That's way too coincidental. Plus that is funny about the fire. The, one of the bad guys creating a distraction yells, stands up and yells fire. That way the other bad guy can stab the kid, but that doesn't happen. But like you said, everybody runs towards the fire, but then once they recognize that there is no fire, they don't kick him off the boat. No, they just seem. Oh, okay. They keep telling the guy keeps telling him just to sit down. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird. And then when we get to that scene where Davy is trying to drive the car out of the garage, it's so ridiculous. And I love again delayed reaction because he turns on the car and then hit puts it in reverse, almost hitting the three thugs. And they all then have their guns drawn, pointing at the windshield. And don't do anything. They've been shooting up the entire movie. Yeah. But don't shoot, this don't moment, shoot Rice's car. They don't fire at the car. And he hits the gas, almost runs over them again. And then they're chasing the car on foot. And Mr. Rice literally yells out, don't shoot at the car. Are you crazy? The car's the already car totaled. Is trashed. Yes. That made me laugh when he said that. I'm like, do you not see your car yet, dude? And then they end up shooting at it anyway when they get out of the garage. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. I love the fact that Davey has been faced with death literally in his face multiple times in this movie. He's been shot at and seemingly undisturbed. And that's why I think he has deep, deep emotional problems. But then at the end after, so we have the crossfire gambit where Jack Flack has instructed him to wait until the two thugs have crossed his path, basically, and that they're wait until the two thugs, because one is walking in front of the other, and one thug, thug gets some distance on the other thug, so there's a space in between them. And then Davy is supposed to run between them 
to cause one of the thugs to turn around and fire toward him, and then he'll run out of the way, and thus the one thug actually, in effect, shoots the other thug. Thus, the thugs get caught in a crossfire. Right. I don't know if I explained that correctly or well at all or succinctly, but... He runs the wrong way. He runs the wrong way. He's being shot at by a machine gun. Alvarez gets gunned down, so it works. So the crossfire gambit... Luckily works, accidentally, because he did it wrong. And now Davey is affected by someone getting killed. He can't, he's like, he's, he died. He's, he's been killed. And I understand maybe he feels as though he caused this man's death. And that's why he's feeling extreme guilt in the moment, but he's been going through this entire movie and now he's affected. But like one of the bad guys just got killed. I would be not necessarily maybe rejoicing in the moment, but still be like, you're like, I'm still alive. I'm going to get the hell out of here. But it was just odd to me. It's like you've been people are dying around you left and right in this movie. And now that a bad guy dies in front of you, you're upset. That was weird. Two more. Uh, one's a little one, which I found was kind of weird. So they do the exchange. So the exchange of the cartridge, because Wright gets a hold of the cartridge. He's got to take it to the Alamo to exchange it. Right. So he has a camera bag. He puts it down. And then you find out the old couple has the other camera bag and they're supposed to swap it out. Rice puts the camera bag down. Davey grabs it and tries to run out of the Alamo with it. And he gets snagged by the guard at the front door. Right. So this made no sense to me. So now Rice is walking out, trying to not, you know, raise any suspicion. And when he's walking away, the everyone's surrounding because they want to know what's going on. And the guard's like to Rice, hey, is this your bag? I'm like, how the fuck do you know that? Been, yeah, the, yeah, that this didn't was make a, any sense. That's a good question. This yeah, was, a, this was inside. This happened inside. He's running out with the bag. I'm like, unless you're super observant and realize that guy walked in with the bag. I was like, how would you know to ask him if this was his bag when he's yeah. walking away like it's not his? It's a good question. And by the way, he was ready to just leave the scene. I understand not wanting to be implicated, but Mr. Rice was going to walk away empty handed. Yeah. He was there for the exchange. He was there to to put the bag down with the cartridge in it, the Rhea swap, and he would pick up the bag with the money that the elderly couple, the spies, would leave. But he's about to just leave. Yeah. He's out of there. Yeah, because he knows things got screwed up. So Yeah. I don't know. That that's that, a bit of that's a little cluster mess. Yeah, that was weird too. That's a it's an awkward scene. That's a good call. So back to what you were saying during the whole, after the crossfire gambit, now that we're back to it's nighttime river walk, we're coming to a climactic scene here. And Mr. Rice has Davy cornered and says, I'm not just going to kill you. This is exactly what you were talking about. He literally threatens to shoot Davy in the kneecaps. Then he's going to shoot him in the stomach so that he will die slowly. That's horrible. It is awful. And that's like you said at the top. You're like, Jesus, that's exactly what I said. I'm like, how that is some dark shit, brother. That is some dark shit. What is that doing in a PG movie that's for kids? How are you that angry at the kid? You got your money. You just, just call it a day. Yeah, but it's just an awful thing. I to- just never understood why they wanted to kill Davey so bad. Oh, that's another huge thing for me because they really go to extremes to kill him. Because at that point, like when they had 
now chased him down. They chase him out of the car garage. Then they all get in the van and then chase him. One guy's in a van. The other two are on foot. They chase him, chase him, chase him. I'm like, wow, they are going to extreme lengths to get this kid when they've already gotten rid of the cartridge. They have their money. Yeah. The, nobody believes the kid anyway. Nobody, exactly. No one believes them. So what, what do you got to kill him for? Then that just makes it worse. Yeah. The whole airport sequence at the end, when did it become like the actual movie airplane too? It was so comical. Oh, just when all the shit starts happening. When now, first of all, Kim gets there by herself. And I'm like, what is Kim going to do when she gets to the airport? She hasn't seen the spies. She knows they're an elderly couple going to Mexico City. So Kim shows up on a bus by herself. This is an eight-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Goes to the San Antonio airport, gets off the bus, goes inside, finds out where the gate is for Mexico City. And I don't know. I don't even remember what happens now. But then now we got Davy, who has killed somebody at this point and shows, oh, he has to go through the slums and find a taxi driver that's willing to take him to the airport. Yeah. He shows up at the airport to save Kim because Kim, by the way, has a bomb implanted in her walkie-talkie, which is, has been set off, uh, not set off yet, but is on a timer and is about to explode at midnight. And so he's got to find her at the airport before the bomb goes off. And they get there and they're, they confront the elderly couple who are spies and their uh, cover is blown. And this whole like melee happens where we got old George McCready, the the gentleman of the, the spy couple, manages to get the gun out of the holster of the security guard who should be fired immediately. Oh, yeah. An 80-year-old just managed to steal your weapon out of your holster. What are you doing, man? Mm-hmm. And it's literally out of space balls. I can't believe it, man. Yeah. I can't <laughs> believe you fell yeah. for it. Oh, oh this trick in the book. <laughs> Here, have your gun back. Whoops. <laughs> Oh, it's so ridiculous. I'm like, oh, man, this has gone like the way of the actual movie Airplane, where it's just like slapstick comedy shtick. Like, it just got goofy. And then Davy's dad shows up and he's like, I can fly the plane. I'm like, wow. Oh, yeah. I I couldn't even get that far with complaints. Yeah, I'm just saying that that whole airport, it it goes beyond ridiculous. Because then, like, you're jumping the shark. It's just the train's gone off the rails. The whole thing because they're on the airplane and there's a ticking bomb and it just gets super cheesy. Like the ending with the terrible green screen, blue screen, projection screen, whatever you want to call it, effects with the plane explosion. And it, it gets and so that, yeah, it gets to be. I mean, they were they were going to blow up that little girl in that whole block. That was their plan. Was right. pretty, I was like, oh, my God, why do you want to kill everyone so bad? You're just not good at it. The thing is, once it gets to the airport, I mean, it just was way too much. It's just way too much because we've already now we've got this poor kid who's been through. He's lost his imaginary, his imaginary best friend. He's murdered somebody, which, by the way, Jack Flack put him in that position. That's a huge another huge complaint to me is like, is Jack Flack even a good guy? Like he helps him in certain moments through the movie, but he's not a good influence on Davey. Yeah, I don't know. Because I, I don't he know keeps what Jack Flack is. Kill the bad guy. Do the crossfire gambit. Gambit. Like, you got to kill him. Kill him. And when he won't kill him, Davy's like, no, I'm not going to kill him. He forces his hand. He's like, well, then I'm just going to magically appear 
to Mr. Rice. So, so we're, we're led to believe that Mr. Rice either sees Jack Flack and then shoot. And then that upsets Davies. Like, don't shoot my best friend. Now I'm going to shoot you. You know, no. my imaginary best. Friend. It's fucking weird. No, I know. Anyway, so I'm going off on it. Right. I'm rambling. Let's let's just keep. We can keep moving. All right. I got two. I thought I, I said I had two more, and then I said one, but now I got two more. All right. All right. One, go for one, it. One go real, real, real quick. So, Davy's dad comes back to the house to figure out what's going on with Davy. Wouldn't you see your house was totally torn up? Like someone busted through your back door. Oh sure. Someone broke in through the front house, and then he just casually walks over to the neighbors, the girl's moms. Oh, is, have you seen Davy? I'd be on the oh. phone with the police. Like, uh, someone broke into my house. My kid called and said there's something about it, like a bomb. I need to find my kid. I'm not going over to the neighbors. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Good point. He's pretty calm I, about that. That uh, yeah, that's a great point. Then my second thing is. Why did the old couple reveal themselves as the bad guys to Davy? What was the point of that? Right. When they could have just upheld their cover and they yeah. could have just gone with it until they got away. Yeah. There's a lot that happens in this movie that is just kind of like that you felt you feel like either the director or writers would combination of both. We're just like, we need to keep it moving. We have to. It's just forced. We got to keep this moving. Let's just have them reveal themselves here. Let's just have them show up here and we need this set piece here to move the story along. It doesn't make it does like it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. A lot of lazy writing. Yeah. That's what I'm gonna say about that. And this screenplay, by the way, yeah, was written by Tom Holland. Yeah. Who is now famous for playing Spider-Man in the MCU, which is amazing. I know. He, he um, wrote this one is what? Negative 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 twelve. Yeah. yeah, he's a talented guy. Uh no, that's not true. Tom no. Holland, uh, different Tom Holland. Yes, this Tom Holland. We'll just move into facts and trivia. Let's do it. Would uh, move on, go on, go on to direct Fright Night and Child's Play. And I think he wrote both of those too. So whatever he did wrong with Cloak and Dagger, he at least kind of learned. And yeah, those are two big, big movies. Yeah, so let's we go back too. and watch those and see how piss poor those Fright are. Fright Night and Child's Play. And you know what else he directed? The Temp. Oh my God. Yes, yeah. That takes us, ladies and gentlemen that are listening, that takes Bill and I back to our University of Miami days when our good friend Marwan Abdurazek. I used to have that shirt for the longest time, the long sleeve shirt that said the. Why can't I remember the company he was working for, though? Tinsley. That, Tinsley, thank you. Yeah. But he, the temp was one of the movies that they were promoting. Oh, God. When he worked there, it was right? all like the worst. Because he got like promotional pictures. materials for the temp. And didn't we see a screening of it? Yes. That's Timothy Hutton is in that, right? Correct. And Laura Flynn Boyle. Flynn Boyle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the temp. Yep. Good stuff. <laughs> that's all I remember about that movie. Tom Holland directed that. Same guy who wrote the screenplay for Cloak and Dagger. And I think he did Psycho 2 also. He did. I like that one. I did like that one. A lot of people like that. All right. Uh, what do you got for uh, facts and trivia? Uh, do we want to jump into that right now or do, Hey, it's that actor. Do we want to just go to uh oh, we'll go, we'll do it backwards. Let's do it backwards. Cause Sorry, this listeners. movie is backwards. Yes. And let me take a step backwards and say, we just got done beating the shit out of cloak and dagger. And with good reason, this movie does not hold up at all. But I, 
still, I don't know why I feel like defending it at this moment, just because I feel bad for the movie at this point, because we just beat it to a pulp. But man, it's just, it's tough, ladies and gentlemen, because I had fond memories of this movie going into this rewatch today. But it's a little upsetting just how haphazard it is. So that being said, fun facts and trivia. We just talked about Tom Holland. Uh, The video game itself, Cloak and Dagger, a.k.a. Agent X, the video game, which is central to the movie, had already been in development as production of this film had begun. The game at the time was a stand-up arcade game known as Agent X. When Atari was consulted to provide a game as an element of this movie, they tweaked Agent X and renamed it Cloak and Dagger. Then Dabney Coleman's character was renamed Agent X in the movie, which is interesting because we know him as Jack Flack. So yeah, I think maybe I I would have liked to get a, gotten a closer look at his beret, his cap. I think the like the bulletproof cap may have said had an X on the front of it or Agent X. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> yes. I, I'll just say Ladies this. Much. Bill's checked out at this point. He's uh, completely checked out. I'll just say this. The He's game over. wasn't any better than the movie. I, I know that much. It still makes no sense to me how you play that game. I just, well, I, it, just, totally. it was just a cool cut scene where you get in the elevator and you see him go to floor one to floor two. But I don't know what you're doing once you got out of the elevator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make it. I, who knows? You're He's carrying a briefcase around and there's a thief in the, in the game. And I don't know. So. Yeah. The stand-up arcade. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm not jonesing for that game. Like, right. Last Starfighter. Uh, yeah. I still want that one. I'm still a little curious. Yeah. Last Starfighter. Hell yeah. But uh, so the stand-up arcade game Agent X, aka Cloak and Dagger, uh, only saw limited arcade release. So the graphics we see on on uh, Morse's computer monitor or uh, yeah monitor screen, those were piped in from the actual stand-up arcade game, which you can see in the scene. Right. So that's arcade game. When you see like the, the agent X with the briefcase, like in a running motion on the side of the stand up arcade game, that's the game. And they had used that. That's what's piped into the monitor. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually seeing the stand up arcade graphics on his screen because the actual home console game was never developed nor released. So interesting little thing. Speaking of Morse's little back office there at the gamekeeper store. Uh, there's a poster in the game shop for the Atari 2600 video game console, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which, mm. as we know, the movie starred Henry Thomas. Yes. Who is in this movie? And the game and, itself ruined <laughs> home consoles right. forever. And I wanted to give a shout out. If you haven't seen the documentary Atari Game Over, check it out. Mm-hmm. It's a good watch. And it's uh, mainly about the disaster that was the release of that game, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, let's see. What else do I have? Do you want to jump in with anything? Yeah. So the uh, elderly couple in the film, John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan, were actually married in real life for approximately 56 years until yeah. John's death in 1991. So I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah. That's So this was kind of fun. I was almost proud of myself because I was watching the scenes with Davey and Jack Flagg as they're walking through the mall uh, and Davey when he goes to the gamekeeper shop where Morris works and like that mall looks familiar that kind of looks like 
the Glendale Galleria, uh, which it is. The Gamekeeper is an actual shop located in the Glendale Galleria in Glendale, California, a few miles from Universal Studios. The shop originally specialized in sophisticated role-playing games, such as the popular Dungeons and Dragons series. Uh, but since the time of the film, that shop has relocated to a smaller store space within the mall and sells mainly mainstream board games. I don't know if that's still true. I haven't been to the Glendale Galleria in a long time, but I recognize it does kind of have a unique architecture and structure yeah. and I, the carpeted floors and things like that. It, like, it was like, yeah, the, the Galleria, it's, a, it's kind of a weird mall. I, when I used to go years ago, which is years ago now, it, it, it felt retro then. Uh, so that was some sort of familiarity when I saw the movie. I was like, yep. Yeah, that's kind of it. I've got, that's all I really have. For okay. Nice trivia. I have one more fun fact. Do it. Yeah, I'm never going to watch this movie again. That's my fun <laughs> fact. Oh my God. All right, let's move on to, <laughs> hey, it's that actor. All right. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Do we mention him for Night Shift, Tim Rosevich? Was that, was that your, hey, it's that actor for that? I had him down as a possible. Okay, so... He was Haverman, so he was the taller thug. Um, the only yeah. reason I is it Rosovich, Tim Rosovich. I always say it Rosovich because I think Rosovich, Rosovich, Rosovich. Anyway, yeah, go for it. So he was an ex-football player. And he played for the Eagles, the Chargers, and the Houston Oilers. Yeah, he was, he was Tom Selleck's roommate at USC. Crazy. And okay, if you watch eighties television at all, you have seen this guy. I'm going to go through these shows. Fantasy in Ireland, Matt Houston, Heart to Heart, A-Team, Trapper John, Auto Man, Knight Rider, Remington Steel, The Fall Guy, and of course, Magnum P.I. with his old buddy Tom Selleck. It's awesome. And as I said, we, he was in another film that we did, Night Shift. He was the John that was with um, Shelley Long, the Henry Winkler. Oh, yeah. The tough guy that was almost going to knock. I was trying to think of which. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Yeah. So that's, of course. So that's my hey, it's that actor. Good stuff, man. Yeah. He. He. I mean, he looks like a prototypical football player too. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he's wearing like a track suit or the sweats in this movie, so it's kind of like looks like he's going mm-hmm. to football practice. Uh. So my hey, it's that actor is. Someone making what I believe was his feature film debut has a very small role as taxi driver number two, Louis Anderson. Yes. Stand-up comedian. I always liked him. I did still too. do. Still do. I think he's hilarious. Very popular stand-up comedian. Also played the small role of Maurice in Coming to America. Uh, had a show, Life with Louis, written uh, more recent years. He was in uh, the show Search Party, which I've heard is very good. I've never seen it. Um, nope. Most importantly, Louis Anderson was the voice of security guard number one in the film Baby's Kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's for you, Marwan. Hey, man, here's a question for you. Didn't Louis Anderson host Family Feud for a while? Did he was host a, a game show? It, what was it? Not family. It was now. I gotta look that up too. It, he was like I remember he hosted a game show for a little bit. Yeah, it might have been Family Feud. So he was in between Richard Dawson and 
Steve Harvey? Yeah, it's possible. Yes, he did. Okay. I was like, yeah, he did. I, I remember he did host a game show. Yep. So Louis Anderson as taxi driver number two. That's all I got for him. Oh, and I wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Robert Doqui as Lieutenant Fleming. Oh, yes. Because he has a major role in our first podcast ever on the All 80s Movies podcast. Yes. The 1987 film RoboCop as Sergeant Reed. Yeah. Yep. Sergeant Reed. Cool. Robert Doqui. Yeah. That's what I got. All right, so let's move on to box office. This movie was released on August 10th, 1984. The movie grossed only $9.7 million total. It debuted at number seven at the box office. It opened the same day as the much-hyped Red Dawn, which was the first released PG-13 movie in theaters. And it was out of the top 10 by its second week of release. So this movie did not do well. Wow, what a shock. Um, moving on to reviews. The movie was not reviewed on Cisco and Ebert at the movies, but it does have a tomato meter score of 67% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.6 score on IMDb. I'm surprised by that. And a Bill Bant score of 6%. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. Do we have any additional thoughts and questions about Cloak and Dagger? Uh, here's a couple additional thoughts just from the mouth of Jack Flack. The first rule of espionage, always stay true to your source. Also, a few other tips from Super Spy. Jack Flack, a good spy always knows when to bring in outside expertise. Friendship is a luxury a spy can't afford. And rule number two, never, never play by the enemy's rules. Just so you guys know. I think... We should all have long-range walkie-talkies to talk to our closest friends, even today. And so, and then instead of texting, we could just use Morse code. I just love walkie-talkies, man. I do, too. I've always loved walkie-talkies. Those walkie-talkies have the most amazing range, though. Oh, <laughs> well, they have 30-foot like, antennas. Yeah, it's like military-grade walkie-talkies. I just loved every time Davey had to like uh, collapse the antenna. It took it five minutes. Of <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. If they cut all those scenes out, the movie would have been one hour and like 26 minutes. Uh, another additional thought I had was the fact that I need to brush up on my history of the Alamo. This was kind of cool. So I knew right away that the Alamo sets were fake because going to the Alamo and that scene, the front door, you can't go in that way. That's like permanently closed. Right. Somebody went through that door. I'm like, oh, that's a set. Yeah. I guess it, there was something in uh, the research that talks about that very fact that they you're not allowed to shoot there. Uh, that's all blocked off. But there is one shot that they were allowed to use. It was something about driving into the area. And there was so that was kind of a rare thing. Right. Yeah. And you see him kind of run across the front. And then it does right. a close that, up of him going through the front door. And I'm like, oh, that's a set door because. Yeah. You can't go through those doors. Right. But uh, I do have some deep questions. Okay. I've already asked actually a few of the, it's okay. all regarding Jack Flack. And is he real? Is he not real? Is he a good guy? Does he really yeah. do anything positive until the, like the actual like very end? Did we ever call game cartridges tapes? No. No. 
No, we didn't. And they actually, that was in the research or in the trivia I had read. Because we had that cassette was a like, tapes. Right. And that was just the screenwriter, not Tom Holland, mm-hmm. just not knowing what he was talking about. Yeah, you would either say game or cartridge. Yeah, you tapes. never called it tape. Because we had, like, exactly. Yeah. If you said tape, that meant cassette tape. Yeah. Or maybe VHS tape. Yeah. Or scotch tape. I don't know. <laughs> or duct tape. Yes. Here's my question for you, though, my friend. Okay. Because this is what I now I'm calling the build bad movie made good mm-hmm. segment. You know, if this were remade, what could it be? Because I think this actually, the concept is still cool. And I think it could be made into a good movie. I honestly do feel that way. I think this could be a real story about a father-son relationship, about an absentee father and a son with a slight disorder as a result of trauma uh, at losing his mother. And they have to find a way to connect. And the connective tissue would be this video game that has some kind of secret information uh, and leads gets this kid into trouble and the father has to save him. And they come together through the story. Like I feel as if though... If the father knew in the first act that his son was really in. I got it. Go got for the, it. I got the yeah. story. So it almost follows the Princess Bride formula. Okay. Where instead of a book, the father brings in the game and it's them actually playing the Jack Black adventure throughout right. the whole movie would be this Jack Black adventure. And right. that's how they bond throughout. And then it would kind of cut away to the two of them. Like something would happen in in the game and then it would cut to them talking or like bonding and then go back to the story and then Jack Black thing would play out and then you would see the dad and the son again in the bedroom or whatever. That's how I, that's how I, would yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's it. But maybe I the do, game is I called think, cloak and dagger. Right. And I, I think that's kind of what it should be or could have been, which would have made this work and could have been very effective. And very bittersweet, because that was my last thing. And that's what I said. The plot should have been closer to the actual gameplay of the video mm-hmm. game. Like, tell us what the game is about, and then the movie has to parallel what happens in the video game. Right. Uh, yeah. Like I said, so the, the video plot game makes sort of, no sense. You, you're right. blowing up floors of a building. I don't know. But like, if you start at the first floor and you blow it up, when the but the like Tron almost did that, or was close. Like the gameplay. Right. was very similar to what Tron and or Flynn and the other characters had to do in the actual movie. Mm-hmm. Right. You've got the tanks, you got the deadly discs, you've got all that stuff. Like those are certain levels that seem to, you know, that happened in the movie. But uh, so, yeah, I think this is like, if they were to reboot this, it could be done effectively and done well, but that's my take. I mean, like I just, it's not like, I, and I'm not doing this just to reach for something positive out of this, because I think there are actual bright spots with the, the performances in it. And there is still nostalgia attached to this movie for me. Rewatching it now, as is, it does not work. The movie is not successful. Should we just go into our recommendations then, with that being said? Yeah, unless you have any other questions yourself or... Uh, Additional no. thoughts? No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So I'll be really quick on this one. My recommendation is if you saw this as a kid and you loved it as a kid, leave it there. 
that's it. Leave it there. Like I said, the first time I saw it, I was disappointed. This time was 10 times worse. <laughs> Not a good movie. I, I wish maybe I had saw it when I was 11. Maybe I would have liked it. But then maybe I would be more disappointed seeing it now and be like, oh, my God, this was yeah. a piece of crap. There is a movie. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely a level of disappointment for me. I do not recommend this movie for kids at all. No. At all. I do not. I, you know, in some of the research or reviews uh, I'd read, there's discussion of it being a bonding film between father and son. And that kind of ties into what I was going to ask actually earlier was, what do you think the message of this film is? But I, And I think this movie was trying to relay a message about a father-son bond, but it does not, it is not successful. It does right. not, it does not come through as it should. Right. Davy's real hero should be his dad, who's been right. in his face the whole time, but he's not seeing it. His dad's going through a traumatic experience too, and he's trying to deal with it in his own way. And it's tough when you're trying to raise a kid and you lost your wife. So I get yeah. it. Yeah, but most of this movie that dad's gone and he's Davy's out on his own with his imaginary friend and or Kim, and it makes no sense whatsoever. No. It's just violent and upsetting. Cause it's just off putting it's weird. It's just kind of strange. So I don't recommend it for kids. Cause I, I do believe the gun violence in particular uh, is upsetting. And I know I am kind of looking at it as an adult and I have, there are kids in my family and uh, looking at it through the present, you know, political climate and how gun violence has affected our society, et cetera. But it's just mishandled. Uh, in this movie, you've just the subject of violence itself. It's it's all a bit too much, and it doesn't send a good message at all. No. So there is an aspect of it being a fun rewatch for adults that saw this as a kid. I've mentioned this before about certain films where it would be fun to watch in a party setting and maybe pick it apart and just have fun with it. But even then. I have. I will say this: it went by quickly. I didn't feel like the film was dragging. I agree with that. It moves at a good pace, but it's just almost absurd. I was just shaking my head a lot, like, "Oh my god, what are they doing?" Yeah. So unless you're gonna just watch it with other adults, just to be like, "What is this movie about? Did, was this real? Did this happen? Is, was this a real movie?" And you're going to watch it with other people that saw it as a kid too, and just kind of share your experiences. But that would be one set of circumstances to watch this film under. Otherwise, give it a pass. There's better ways to spend your time. Right. Sorry, Cloak and Dagger, but we do have to be true to ourselves and our honest opinions on this podcast. So there you have it. Yep. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week will be a special mini-sode for Thanksgiving holiday. It is our under-the-radar 80s movies. It'll be movies that Jason and I watched a bunch of times back in the day, but feel they might not be quite episode-worthy. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.